The Daily 202's Big Idea is sponsored by Cleveland Clinic, ranked number one in the nation in heart care 24 years in a row, according to U.S. News & World Report. For information on the complex cases treated at Cleveland Clinic or to get a second opinion, visit clevelandclinic.org heartcare. The Daily 202's Big Idea is sponsored by Cleveland Clinic, ranked number one in the nation in heart care 24 years in a row, according to U.S. News & World Report. For information on the complex cases treated at Cleveland Clinic, or to get a second opinion, visit clevelandclinic.org slash heartcare. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, April 30th. In today's news, President Trump plans to charge huge fees to asylum seekers looking for refuge in America. Joe Biden proposes a public option on health care as the Bernie camp attacks and Japan's emperor abdicates. But first, the big idea. Norway fears that a beluga whale spotted by fishermen last week wearing a harness produced in St. Petersburg is part of an elaborate Russian spying operation against the West. Intelligence officials believe that the harness could have carried not just cameras, but weapons, triggering new speculation about a sea mammal special operations program that the Russian Navy, at the behest of Vladimir Putin, has been pursuing for years. They could use a fleet of whales against Western targets in the event of war. The Russian Defense Ministry denies the existence of such a program, but they always do. And the same ministry published an ad in 2016 seeking three male and two female bottlenose dolphins and offering a total of $24,000. Meanwhile, China, which is probably an even greater long-term threat to American hegemony, is actively planning to build a base on the moon in the next 10 years. The China National Space Administration intends to build what they're calling a research station on the moon's south pole, according to a report from the state news agency in Beijing. Meanwhile, a major new survey shows growing numbers of people across the globe growing dissatisfied with democracy, even in the West. This means they're becoming more susceptible to strongmen who promise easy solutions to complex problems. A major new study released overnight from Pew shows that across 27 countries polled, a median of 51% are dissatisfied with how democracy is working for them in their country. Only 45% are satisfied. Assessments of how well democracy is working vary considerably across nations. In Europe, for example, more than 6 in 10 Swedes and Dutch are satisfied with the current state of democracy, while large majorities in Italy, Spain, and Greece are dissatisfied. The link between views of the economy and assessments of democratic performance is strong, in 24 of 27 countries surveyed, people who say the national economy is in bad shape are more likely than those who say it's in good shape to be dissatisfied with democracy. Meanwhile, even American allies continue their drift toward authoritarianism and autocracy. My colleague Kareem Fahim has an unsettling story today about how the relatives of political prisoners who are being held by Saudi Arabia are strongly discouraged by the regime in Riyadh from speaking publicly about their detained loved ones. But some make the agonizing decision to do so anyway, in hopes that drawing attention to their imprisonment will advance their cases. But the risk of retaliation is high. 
Several relatives say they went public after trying and failing to find back doors to government officials. Their frustrations are the consequence of the changes being wrought by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who is making the kingdom far more authoritarian than it was in the recent past. The profiles of these families reflect the breadth of MBS's crackdown, which began in earnest in September 2017 and has led to the arrests of people for dissent, their prominence, or for reasons that remain a mystery even to their families, let alone the public. The decision-making by Mohammed seems increasingly unpredictable, these relatives tell Kareem, and thus the risk of staying quiet even greater. And here's more bad news from the Middle East. ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is still alive, despite reports of his death. He appeared in a video released by the Islamic State yesterday, the first time in five years he's been seen publicly. Seated cross-legged on a flowered mattress in a bare white room, Baghdadi hailed the Islamic State's expansion around the globe, urged his supporters to keep up the fight, and congratulated the perpetrators of the Easter Sunday suicide attacks on churches and hotels in Sri Lanka. Baghdadi's beard, apparently tinted with henna at some point in the recent past, has grayed since his previous video, which was recorded at the Great Mosque of Al-Nuri in the Iraqi city of Mosul in July 2014. That's when he first announced that ISIS planned to recreate the caliphate. Otherwise, he looked to be in good health and showed no obvious signs of injury, despite numerous reports in recent years that he had been wounded in airstrikes or in battle. The war continues. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, President Trump has ordered major changes to U.S. asylum policies, including measures that would charge fees, hefty fees, to migrants who have legitimate claims of seeking humanitarian refugee status. Trump's directive also calls for tightening asylum rules by banning anyone who crosses the border illegally from obtaining a work permit of any kind. His directive also gives courts a 180-day limit to adjudicate asylum claims that now routinely take years to process because of a ballooning backlog. The order, announced in a presidential memo released overnight, comes as Trump is seeking to mobilize his supporters with a focus on nativism ahead of his 2020 re-election campaign. The new White House measures, which call for regulations to be formally rolled out in 90 days, come a week after Trump issued a separate memo directing the secretaries of state and Homeland Security to find ways to combat visa overstays. It's a fresh example of this administration trying to squeeze migration, as it argues that the influx of undocumented people amounts to a national emergency. Number two, the disastrous failure of Vermont's single-payer health system carries important lessons for 2020 presidential candidates who are running on Medicare for All. Three and a half years after then-Governor Peter Shumlin of Vermont, a Democrat, signed into law a vision for the nation's first single-payer health system, his team couldn't figure out how to pay for it. The choices Shumlin favored essentially would have either doubled Vermont's budget, raised state income taxes by 10%, and placed a 12% payroll tax on all employers. Shumlin says this burden would have posed the risk of economic shock, even though Vermonters would no longer need to pay for private health plans. Those building a national single-payer model would confront many of these same dilemmas. But few Democrats show signs of acknowledging, let alone wrestling, with these gritty complexities. Even Bernie Sanders, eager as he was for Vermont to become the first single-payer state, 
seldom mentions that the proposal he touted back home didn't come to pass. Holding his first rally as a declared candidate in Pittsburgh yesterday, former Vice President Joe Biden expressed support for a public option that would allow Americans to buy into a Medicare-like health insurance plan. Sanders wants to enroll every American in the Medicare program, a so-called single-payer system. And an aide to Bernie's campaign took a swipe at Biden's decision to attend a private fundraiser that included health insurance executives last Friday. Biden's plan would create a new government option for patients in the marketplace that would aim to lower prices for individual Americans by competing directly with private plans. Number three, Japan's emperor Akihito formally abdicated in a short ceremony today at the Imperial Palace in Tokyo. He was thanked by Prime Minister Shinzo Abe for his service to the nation before making a short speech that encapsulated the peaceful and humble outlook that marked his reign. Akihito is the first Japanese emperor to abdicate since 1817. His 30 years as ceremonial head of state come to an end at midnight, concluding what is known as the Heisei Era. Akihito's son, the crown prince Naruhito, who is 59 years old, will accede to the chrysanthemum throne in another ceremony at the palace tomorrow morning. His reign will mark the beginning of the Raiwa era. That's a term taken from ancient Japanese literature that translates roughly to beautiful harmony. Akihito is a much-loved figure in Japan. He humanized the role of emperor, once viewed as a living god, by reaching out to vulnerable members of society and victims of natural disasters. And he actually looked ordinary people in the eye when talking to them, the first time an emperor had ever done that. He also encouraged Japan to acknowledge its wartime past and the atrocities committed against, among others, American troops. Admirably, Akihito never pandered to the nationalists who revere the tradition embodied in the emperor role. And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, April 30th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.